This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. As you may or may not have heard, Hamilton is uh, going to be putting forward a bid for the uh, 2019 Junos based on last minute, um, I'm not sure what it was, uh, but uh, Hamilton wasn't really planning on doing this again till uh, 2020, and uh, they've been asked to submit a bid for 2019, from what we understand. Uh, why specifically us approached other cities? Uh, is the list short? Do they need bodies? What's the story here? Uh, let's bring in Graham Rockingham, music critic for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. Graham, what are your thoughts on all of this? Oh, I think it's going to come here, uh, 2019. So why do you think, because uh, from what we understand, uh, Hamilton, of course, successful at this, does a great job of it, it's great for the city, we all certainly know the economic benefit. They were going to try in 2020. How did we get this bump? Well, early? I think, uh, you know, I'm, I've been saying, uh, I've actually been saying 2019 for, uh, since 2016, uh, after the Junos, uh, after the Junos were here in uh, 2015, but, um, I'm there. Uh, to be honest, there's been some changes in the uh, uh, ECDEV, uh Economic Development Department of uh, uh, of the City of Hamilton. Uh, the, the same people who were instrumental in in Hamilton tourism and economic and the music office in Hamilton uh, are not there anymore. Um, so there's some changes, and I and I and I don't know if that transition has been as smooth. I mean, you never have a transition like that. Mm-hmm. It's smooth. And all of a sudden, the Junos are dealing with uh, another bunch of people. That, And there's a lot of changes going on with the Junos right now. Uh, uh, they've uh, left CTV and are going, they've signed a long contract, with, a long-term contract with CBC. There's, so there's all things, all sorts of things at play here. But I the Junos do the traveling Juno show likes going east and west. Mm-hmm. We know that. Um, uh, went Calgary, Ottawa. Next year it goes Vancouver. So an eastern city uh, is is likely in the running next year. Um, there's other things financially. It's not just about the financial benefits to our town. It's the financial benefits to uh, the academy, to Karis. Um, they, and they, they are the whole, the, the, Karis is the record industry, really. It's the, it's, uh, represents the major labels in this country. And there's not as much money, let's face it, as there was 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So they've got to watch their bank accounts, too. When you're dealing, and, and so Karis has their druthers. They'd rather have, I, they'd rather have, a bigger stadium than a smaller stadium. If you're talking about a place like Saskatoon, mm-hmm. which is less than half the size of uh, a first Ontario center, their their arena, you're talking about much fewer ticket sales. Yeah, as you are with London, Ontario. I mean, it's bigger than Saskatoon. That being said, you know, Graham, there's so many there's only so many Canadian large cities. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Well, well, there's other things here going on too. The the uh, the, the Junos do not like to travel. Yeah. Uh, again, money. Yeah. Um, the industry is a Toronto-based mm-hmm. uh, operation. Uh, when they have to move all their artists and everything to places like Saskatoon, they don't like it. Yeah. You can't get a direct flight to Saskatoon, yeah. and uh, for one thing, and it just costs an awful lot of money to move all those people there. Don't forget, 
the, the Junos um, really are an industry convention, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. 13, you get about 1,300 people all coming in. Uh, yeah, it's more than just, the, it's more than oh, just yeah. the TV show, yeah. And so... Somebody's got to pay all the ticket for the uh, the tickets for all those people. So these are these are labels uh, and 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 agencies paying to send all their people off to Saskatoon or or to other places. I think if if uh, the academy had their druthers, they'd have it in the same place every year, and Hamilton would be fine by them. So why don't they just hold it in Toronto every year the way it was? Well, Toronto's not available. Of Toronto, um, there's a couple. There's of bigger things. bigger fish to fry there. There's bigger fish to fry there. Uh, yes, the competition's there. Um, it's not as uh, as big a showcase there. Um, the the and and it's just harder to find spaces. You know, when it comes to Hamilton, it takes over the whole town, and we're, we're yeah. happy to do it. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. The only yeah. thing going on, and they love it. Um, and the ticket sales are terrific. Um, again, you know, they make the money on seat sales, and that's important to them. Um, so, so what about yeah. the whole idea that uh, it, it appears, whether there's truth to this or not, that they approached us about doing this? Is that because they're not uh, satisfied? I wouldn't be surprised. Is that because you know uh, there aren't a lot of a lot of other larger cities that are that are bidding this time? Uh, what's the deal? I understand London's you know kind of yeah. London's wanted it bad, mm-hmm. um, and they've been wanting it for a while, and they've been uh, quite aggressive in their marketing, and good for them. Uh, more and, so and it looks like Saskatoon is out. Like they're, it looks like they it costs out. a lot of money, yeah. and and if the province isn't going to uh, uh, to buck up. Um, they're not going to do it themselves, and that, I think that's the situation with Saskatoon. Um, and we've got to make sure our province is on side because we can't do it ourselves either. Yeah. I mean, even putting up 500000 bucks, I I was surprised by that amount because I believe the last time uh, it was uh, the cost of the city was just 250000 Um That's certainly what I was writing at the time anyway. So, um, And all this stuff about discounts, that's... I don't know where it's coming from, but um, maybe some things were said that weren't supposed to become pub uh, become public. That's and what it got sounds into like. a report that shouldn't have, and um, and nobody wants to uh, uh, appear like they're uh, getting any uh, like special treatment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like the fix is on because yeah. they got you know they got to deal with people in London, and uh, London's been. Uh, uh, been uh, lobbying very hard for it, um, and and doing really remarkable things. Uh, they've got a full time music officer at the London City uh, uh, in London City Hall. It's something we don't have here. So, so uh, yeah, it looks now that uh, with Saskatoon, they've learned they won't get provincial mm-hmm. funding for the bid, so they're going to hold off until the no. uh, they're going to hold off to the community or sorry to the. Uh, uh, economy improves. So that basically leaves London. So London gets it unless Hamilton competes, and we know where that's going ha- yeah, to end up. It. I mean, uh, uh, $500,000 may sound like a lot of money uh, for the city to uh, put up, but uh, the economic benefits and, uh, and the intangible benefits just, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 
you know, we made the the National Wire Service today, and they're talking about that every time it's Hamilton's mentioned, uh, it's it's about the cultural awakening that's going on here. You know, oh, it always counts, helps. Yeah, it always helps. So, so it, it's it's a good thing for sure. Um, I think uh, they, you know, other things benefits we have. Um, if Insight Productions continues to do it, and they've done it uh, for over twenty, I think twenty over twenty years now, for both uh, with both CBC and CTV. I know John Brunton, the executive producer at Insight, loves working at uh, uh, First Ontario Center because uh, it may be old, but that uh, at rink level. Um, the the structure allows a lot of space yeah, yeah. for film production crews to work here. Yeah. You know, and that's uh, a big thing. So what does this mean for next year or for the year after, Graham? Like if Hamilton well, was uh, if uh, Hamilton uh, was trying for it for twenty twenty, so well, obviously it goes, that, it goes to a western city. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Saskatoon, but I'd say uh, not likely. Um, maybe Edmonton. Maybe uh, maybe back to Calgary. Um, maybe Winnipeg. Uh, but it's got to be the. 2021 is a really important year. That's the 50th anniversary year. Right. And we know who's got to get the big anniversary year. Yeah, yeah. That goes to Toronto. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, for planning, <laughs> it just makes sense. Uh, these guys are looking down the road. When oh, yeah. And, and, and the last time it was in Toronto was the 40th anniversary year. Right. So like, Toronto wants it for those big, That's right. big, big years. They've already booked the 100th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they probably have, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so does this change, uh, and it must change, uh, Hamilton's position, uh, thinking, hey, we, we, we didn't want this, we weren't going for this, we were going to wait till the final. Well, they should have been. Um, uh, I'm surprised there wasn't contingency uh, in Ottawa last year, uh, lobbying, frankly. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think they've got to get their uh, act together and start putting together uh uh, a, a solid committee, um, and yeah, uh, go to uh, uh, Tim Potasik, who was the um, uh, the chairman of the uh, last host committee in 2015, did such a, a, a fantastic job, and was also uh, instrumental in bringing that uh, and winning that bid for Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So we've got to get people like that. We've got to get them acting fast. And, uh, you know, it's it's tough. It sounds like it's less about bidding for it now, and uh, we're a preferred candidate. So how much do we have to bid here? They love us. We've done it a few times. We've still got to put up the money. We've still got to show yep. it. And we still yep. got to get get the act together mm-hmm. um, uh, to put on a good show. And all these things are important. We but certainly it's a lot easier for us than it is for some smaller city that's trying to do it that hasn't done it yet. Or, uh, I agree it uh, in many ways, but... I, I tell you, from what I hear about uh, London and and what I've seen in Saskatoon before, uh, the enthusiasm of those small bids are, are just huge. Oh, they'll go a long way. Yeah, they'll do a great job. Yeah, no two yeah. ways about it. And you know what? I'm uh, obviously so we, we can't we can't just lay back and no, relax. No, no, I I totally get that. Yeah. And uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, as you mentioned, it it is great to see it go across the country. It is great to see it go into those yeah. smaller places. And uh, you know, if they can make it all. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I gotta be uh, be honest. If they were 
held them five years in a row like they used to in the 90s in Hamilton. I'm not sure if I could survive it. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, really. I hear you. Yeah. Well, you know. All right. Uh, I can't let you go without your thought on the whole uh, ticket bots thing and, and you know, legislation that's going to go through today. Uh, is this lip service? Do you think this is going to do something? Well, I, I, I don't. It's certainly lip service. Whether it's going to do something, maybe a little bit, but I, I, I don't think it's going to be changing the map that much. I mean, at the end of the day, as long as you can resell tickets, you're going to have this issue, are there you, you not? Go. There you go. <laughs> and as I've always said, and I've always said, I want more transparency. There's nothing. I, I want to know exactly. I'd like the promoters and the venues to say, this is the amount of percent the percentage of tickets we're putting uh, on sale to the public mm. and and I, and if you force people to do that you're going to start finding that well we can't say that we're only putting 40 percent on sale to the public we're holding back 60 percent to friends and, yeah. and, and and specialty customers that might change the thing a little bit at least make it honest and open and it goes back to what you were talking about, the Junos, that they have to have a certain size facility because so much of the, so many of those tickets are comp tickets for people mm-hmm. in the industry. There isn't mm-hmm. that much there to sell to the general That's public. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you're dealing with a, a arena that's 6,500 maximum, you know, and, and you carve into that because of uh, uh, production uh, restrictions, when you're doing that kind of uh, live uh, uh, filming, it uh, takes a lot of seats out. And then, yeah, you've got... You got a thousand seats uh, uh, taken anyway. And you know what, Graham? This goes to that discussion we've had so many times when they talk about changing cops or reconfigging it or whatever. You know what? There is the benefits to having a large center, and there's the reason right there. Well, we, and they they are occasional, occasional, but they are there. You know, whether it's a larger act or even shows like this. You that's know, right. I mean, that's what's holding Saskatoon and London back in the end, right? Yeah, and we. We get, you know, they may get more acts, but they don't get Springsteen. They don't get McCarty. Yeah. We do. And, and exactly. So why take something you've got? I mean, if you want to try to build one that's halfway between that and another, that's another discussion. But I don't know. I wouldn't be going, altering that too much uh, as far as shrinking it in size. That's, there's a, all the, I, I, you know, that, that's a, it, it takes such a cost analysis because the, the, you know, yeah, I that's said, true we're too. Talking yeah. Occasional yeah, you're very true. Yep, very and, true. And but it also there's a day to day cost yeah. of keeping a place that size running. Sure, just absolutely. turning the lights on. By the way, what happened with all the concerts at Tim Hortons Field? When is that all going to happen? Well, I don't think we're seeing that many, are we? We, we saw Billy Talent in the in the summer, and uh, we saw uh, the the concerts at uh, Labor Day. So they're happening more often. I think uh, we we're getting. You know, they, I think they realized that the cats realized, well, this isn't so easy mm. as it seemed. Yeah. So they've gone into an alliance and a partnership with uh, uh, Supercrawl Productions, Tim Potisic and, and right. Sonic Onion et al. Um, that's going to produce uh, uh, more shows. But I'd still say only one big one a year. And those aren't going to be really big ones either. They'll be like the Billy Talent show. Right, so yeah, I hear you. It's, uh, again, um, it's it's not, I mean, you can't put many acts into that size of a uh, yeah. 
a stadium. Yeah, yep, and exactly. You better, and you better pick them right if you're going to, um, uh, because you can... Otherwise, there'll be people sleeping on a front porch somewhere. <laughs> and there could be that, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Graham Rockingham. Graham, what do you got coming up we should be watching for in the spec? You know, I, I just want to say I saw... Um, Last night I went to Burlington Performing Arts Center and saw Graham Nash. Oh, cool. And it was a great show. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting much. Uh, I was going because, hey, he's 74, and it may be the last time I get to see one of my uh, uh, teen idols. I was a huge Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young fan when I was growing up. And uh, and I thought, well, his voice is going to be shot after all these years, and Mm -hmm. he's going to be old and shriveled and... Man, was he ever great. Well, that's good. He did uh, 24 songs uh, uh, with with a break. He opened with Bus Stop by the Hollies. Cool. Uh, ended with Teacher's Children and did everything in between. Um, had great stories about living with Joni Mitchell and uh, did Ohio. And, wow. Uh, yeah, it was great. I was so surprised. I mean, when you come out and you open with Bus Stop, by, uh, that old yeah. song from the Hollies, yeah. you know... His voice is on, because yeah. he was always the high harmony. Yeah, and that's exactly. That's not an easy thing to do, and and it was just, and he also did some totally unexpected things. He did uh, a day in the life by the Beatles. Hmm, that's he interesting. He came out and said, "I always wanted to sing this song." <laughs> that's how he closed the first set. It was terrific. It was, it was uh, so. I was so pleased to see that show. Um, and uh, uh, and I'm glad I went. Graham Rockingham, music critic for your Hamilton Spectator, and of course you can read him at thespec.com. Graham, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Talk to you later. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. If you've uh, ever had to uh, get down the mountain after or during rush hour in the morning, you know exactly what we're talking about in the congestion as it all kind of bottlenecks as it was. Uh, we come down the escarpment. And uh, certainly not a new problem. And as we start to grow even more, uh, what does the future hold? And especially when we're trying to uh, develop industrial lands and bring more industrial tax dollars into uh, the area, simply because the more business we have, uh, the less everybody pays on residential uh, on residential tax. Uh, that being said, uh, if you've got if you've got uh, a company or what have you, uh, obviously you got to move your goods and your people in and out. And if you've got congestion, much like Toronto, then what's the sense of coming to Hamilton? So Hamilton City Council uh, wants the province to move forward with a widening of part of the 403. Uh, the argument the city has uh, is is made is that, you know, in the future, this is going to scare away potential jobs. To talk more about all of this, Guy Paparella is with us, Director of Growth Planning, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Guy, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. So what are you hearing from businesses uh, in and around the area? Well, we're hearing from mostly uh, logistics companies. Uh, it hasn't affected manufacturing uh, directly yet, but it will if uh, we're in a just-in-time kind of society. And uh, a lot of our airport businesses, for example, uh, DHL, Purelater, uh, they move in, you know, product uh, early in the morning, and if they're delayed and they can't get their product to their customers before nine o'clock, uh, especially if they're moving towards the GTA, 
it creates issues for them, productivity issues. Uh, transport companies like Fluke have called me and, and sort of uh, supported exactly what we're asking for. Uh, we've asked for this numerous times uh, since 2005, actually. Uh, there's uh, a whole slew of requests. Uh, we participated in a number of studies, environmental assessments, where the province has recommended even that the uh, the 403 be expanded. Uh, but uh, it's getting to a critical point now, and we really need to, to rectify this. Uh, it's great to, to study it and, and evaluate and analyze, but uh, we're in a situation of paralysis pretty soon, so we we don't want to chase away business. Uh, we're, we're in a, a good uh, place right now. Hamilton is progressing. We're growing, uh, you know, leaps and bounds on the residential side. We're attracting business on the industrial side, and we don't want to lose that momentum because we have congestion like uh, our neighbor to the east. So it's critically important for productivity, and it's critically important to uh, for the attraction of business to, to know that our transportation networks are working properly. And the key bottleneck for us right now, from what we've hear, heard here in the office, is is a 403 is a major problem. So we need to, to be more assertive with the ministry. Uh, it's great that they've invited us to, to participate in studies, uh, but studies take a long time. Uh, we, we are at a critical point now. Uh, it's been over... 10 years since it was recommended and we're still studying it and looking at it and uh, we need to to move to an action plan where it can be constructed uh, relatively quickly in the next couple of years or else we're going to be in a more critical situation. Um, so that's sort of the gist of our problem right now. Uh, Guy, uh, anybody who's been here for any length of time knows how long it took, for example, to get the link built. And then, of yeah. course, it seemed once it was it was built, it was already at capacity. Yeah. Uh, do you do you do you foresee a challenge with people against this sort of thing? I mean, even though it is needed for well, business and economics, yeah. I mean, do you? It, yeah. it took forever to build the link. Do you think it's going to take a while to get this thing expanded? I think, you know, the process is, is pretty clear. You have to go through environmental assessments, and because you're crossing the escarpment or downbound uh, through the escarpment, there's always environmental issues. Um, but if you if you travel it on a daily basis, you'll see uh, quite a wide median in the middle that uh, can easily accommodate another lane. So we're not saying that, that we need to uh, you know, cantilever or create a gardener type of situation here, like your one of your uh, callers. Uh, you don't think stacking mentioned. is a, you don't think stacking <laughs> is up like cordwood's the answer here, guy? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I really think that would become uh, an issue uh, environmentally, aesthetically, and noise wise. Yeah, that I would mean, look beautiful going up the escarpment, I, wouldn't I it? Mean, we'd create lots of capacity, no question. But I, I don't think that's the answer right now. And then, I, and then we could maybe put like an LRT, put a rail line on the very top. <laughs> yeah, or through the middle or on top. Sure. I mean, uh, I mean, all those things uh, are, are ideas. But I mean, right now we need some action to try and move along. Uh, one lane uh, would would free up some time. I was backed up uh, to Wilson Street. I come in on that uh, on that escarpment uh, crossing uh, the Ancaster Hill, as they call it, and uh, 
uh, every day. I'm I'm backed up either from Highway Six uh, or Wilson Street, uh, and it takes a good you know half hour, forty minutes to get down the hill. Yeah, it's and that's, brutal. Um, that's that's a not, and that's just me. Um, but it, I see DHL trucks, I see cargo trucks, I see courier trucks stuck in the same mm-hmm. traffic and and I know that uh the drivers are quite anxious to move along to get their product to where it needs to go so the, these are productivity issues it's not about commuters it's more about getting product to market and getting suppliers uh uh back to to Hamilton so that we could uh, continue manufacturing and doing the things that we do best so so what's your wish list, Guy? What's needed now? Where, where do you start with this? And, and again, I mean, this is, this is going to have to be ongoing in, in sure. a sense. Where, where, what's the first stage? Well, keep in mind, this, this came out of the NGTA study, the, you know, the ill-fated Mid-Peninsula Highway, if mm. you remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that is really the ultimate. We need more capacity uh, for not a, just a highway, but a trade corridor that will be multi-faceted uh, in terms of rail and um, uh, highway as well. It's, it's not just about uh, moving cars. We have to move goods, as they say. Goods moving is really what the, that's all about. And in the interim, we can do some things. Uh, we're kind of limited at the escarpment uh, in that 403 corridor because it's you're kind of hanging over the uh, the edge yeah. there on the one side. So you you've got uh some room there so it'll help alleviate the problem for for the short term um is probably going to be at capacity as you say the first day it's built but at least it alleviates some of the issues if we can gain 5 10 15 minutes um you know in that that trek down the hill on a daily basis that 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 only helps the issue so uh ultimately we have to look at the uh what they're calling the NGTA, the Niagara Greater Toronto Area uh, study, which looks at a larger picture of how the 403 um, can be expanded, but also how uh, the uh, that highway can be brought a- across, and and it's intended to go all the way through Niagara to to Fort Erie, and then down connecting with the Continental One and down the Eastern Seaboard. Yeah, it is about trade. It is about moving goods. And uh, well, know, that these are the for- kinds of things we have to do to try and keep the economy going. You talked about the 403 and heading down uh, towards Niagara. How much is that in lieu of the Mid- Mid-Peninsula Highway, and how much would that highway have taken congestion away from exactly well, it, what you're talking about? It's marginal. It's not a lot. Uh, it it yeah. helps mostly our local situation. Yeah. Uh, we really need that long-term solution. Uh, there has to be you know, that, that broader thinking and strategic thinking at... Uh, at a provincial level to to help us uh in this whole region the niagara hamilton region is uh, really in need of this uh, it'll help our airport uh expand it'll help uh uh we we just uh designated a couple of years ago about 1500 acres up around the airport uh it'll help expand and attract business to those areas and help us service the area so that we can uh move goods and, and create jobs. Uh, so that's really what it's about. How long would it take to do this project if it started uh, tomorrow? Well, 
you know, it, it's not that easy. You have to design. You have to make yeah. sure that that all your approvals are in place. I mean, it, it could be uh, it could be done in a couple of years, but generally it takes two to three years just to do that kind of thing. So it's not an easy process, but that's why we're you know trying to be a little more uh, um, assertive and a little bit more forceful in terms of our needs because we know it's going to take a little while to get it done. So um, it is a you know, a situation where we, we think it's going to be really critical in three to four years. So if we don't act now to move towards getting it, uh, um, you know, moving into the action plan as a priority for the province, then we really um, are going to be behind the eight ball three years from now. Is it worth uh, tackling other projects at this time, or is that just not even an option because there isn't the money for that? I think right now we want to focus on that. Uh, we, we also asked for Highway 5 and 6 up in uh, Waterdown mm-hmm. to be addressed as a priority because that's another bottleneck. Uh, we're asking for things to be rectified in our situation here in Hamilton to help uh, move things along. Uh, there's there's lots of traffic uh, congestion in Waterdown right now, mm. and we want to correct that as situation as well. The 403 is the other, and, uh, you know, if we focus on those two, um, I think more acutely uh, than than others, then, then we hope to get some action in the short term rather than the long term. When will you know more on this guy? Well, we're going to be sending correspondence to the ministry and we're going to be, uh, you know, asking for some timelines. We'll be asking to meet directly uh, with ministry people to make sure that uh, they have given it the priority it deserves uh, and just, you know, stress how important it is to Hamiltonians and to the regional economy, actually. So it's it's really important that we do that and uh, hopefully move the agenda as fast as possible. You talked about the plan uh, NGTA, was what you called it, I believe? Yes, the Niagara... Uh, Greater, Greater Toronto, Toronto area, area study. That's, it's a larger study that, that's looking at corridor planning uh, for uh, these trade tor- corridors and highways uh, from essentially from Toronto to the Niagara uh, U.S. border. Uh, on that note, is it just a matter of time before the Mid-Peninsula Highway of some sort gets built? Well, uh, it is on the books. It is something they're reviewing. Um, it's run up against some issues, uh, you know, but uh, it's still something that uh, as late as, as May this year, the minister invited us to participate in in the ongoing uh you know, preliminary design studies and class environmental assessments. So it is, it is ongoing. It just these things can, can drag on and they can take a long time. It's it started ten years ago, so mm-hmm. uh, actually before that. But uh, you know, it, it, we don't want another ten years to go by before we start uh, dealing with this problem. So we need to look at it now and we need to, to get some action in the next uh, you know couple of years. Guy Paparella have been, has been with us, Director of Growth Planning, City of Hamilton. Hamilton City Council wants the province to move forward with widening part of the 403. Obviously, uh, some issues up at uh, Highway 6 as well. Guy, uh, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have certainly heard uh, lots 
who commented uh, over the uh, last several months in regard to uh, buying concert tickets. Uh, this is coming. Th- this discussion has come and gone uh, a lot over the years, uh, but most recently uh, came to light during the Tragically Hips farewell tour, of course, last summer, and uh, a lot of people were uh, pushed out shall we say, by uh, ticket bots and other technology that uh, allows others uh, to beat you to the front of the line, so to speak. Uh, well, now the Ontario government is moving forward with its changes to event legislation. This is in addition to stuff they already talked about earlier on in the summer. It'll become a larger consumer protection bill that will attempt to widen opportunities to enforce its new rules. Uh, is, uh, is this going to combat ticket box effectively? Uh, does it really at the end of the day, uh, do anything, and and who polices all this stuff? Eric Elper is with us, music publicist, and he is with us now. Eric, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Oh, always have seen you talk about customer protection and why we still matter. (laughs) Why are we still... Let me ask this, Eric. Why are we still having this conversation? It seems we've been having it for years. Well, we're, we're still having this conversation because nothing has been solved. And like any good government, I would imagine that they want to solve this problem before the next huge emotional response of a tour happens. Let's say Brian Adams announces the fact that he's going to be announcing his farewell tour or even more closer to home. Let's say Tom Wilson or Blacking the Rodeo King want to do it. They just want to make sure that they've got it right, because it's really tough, as you probably know, um, to actually get laws enforced and everybody on board because the Ontario government did something that I was pleasantly surprised that they did. They asked the general public for consultation and over 35 people, uh, 35,000 people responded um, to what they'd like to see in terms of scalping and buying tickets on secondary sites because, quite frankly, I don't think anybody can sit here in a hypocritical position saying, well, I've never done it before, because we all have, whether it's ticket scalping or whether it's buying something on eBay. We've all enjoyed the secondary market. So obviously stopping that secondary market isn't the answer, because this could all be solved by just simply saying it's not allowed to resell tickets. It was that way at one point. Uh, Is that the answer? Um, You know what? I think that's the clear-cut answer, and just have the government say If you sell your tickets for one penny above that ticket price, you are officially breaking the law. And we have every right to not only charge you, but we have every right to fine you and throw you in jail. And also, we have every right to go after the people in case if it's a company that are selling those tickets, not only fining and putting those people in jail from those companies, but let's say that those tickets actually came from the artist and the government now had the right to go after the artist for providing those tickets to the secondary market. Um, but I don't think it's something that they want to do. And the only reason why I think this is because those secondary companies that are legit and doing business in a fine way are actually paying taxes based on their business. Hmm. Interesting point. Uh, so obviously the answer isn't as simple as just stopping the resale of tickets, although that would solve the problem. Yeah, but it's also, it confuses it a little bit more and, and, the, and the waters get a little bit muddy. And here's why. So that, you know, you've got outlets like StubHub, which is an outside 
company that offers the ability for people like you and I or mm-hmm. anybody on the street to resell their tickets in a fairly easy manner. Um, it's pretty simple to use. But then also Ticketmaster, who is a distributor of tickets, who we all go to their site to try to buy tickets at first glance, also has their own secondary site. And what you don't want is to come after a company like Ticketmaster because if anybody can tell you that's a massive massive company and very powerful at that. Um, They're not just, you know, two people sitting in a building. It's a worldwide company that makes billions of dollars. And I don't think that the government wants to do anything um, negative towards them, too. So I think in this in, in these rules and these laws that are that are kind of coming into it, they're actually pinpointing not necessarily the people that's selling it on the secondary markets, although they have those people in sight, but it's the so-called scalper bots, and they're imposing the new rules because really that's the issue. It's not somebody Mm -hmm. that can't go to the show anymore because they now have to go somewhere else and they just want to kind of make a few bucks here and there. It's those scalping bots that are based even out of this country that have the ability to buy up 5, 10, 15, even 20,000 tickets in seconds if they wanted to. Uh, Obviously, this problem has increased with technology, as you've just explained. Can technology fix this problem? No, um, not not by itself, because you're never going to be able to solve the problem of banning scalper bots. Um, The only thing that really you can use technology for, and a number of artists have done this, including Bruce Springsteen and Eric Church. Um, Eric Church did, he announced a a, a massive tour last year and saw that over 25,000 tickets from his tour were only being paid for by a certain amount of credit cards. And it just didn't add up. So Eric Church's manager took a look at this when he looked at the numbers and he got involved. He took the step that a lot of artists and managers and record labels just simply don't, is that they take a look at, at, you know, something just isn't right here. Or that they hear from the fans that, hey, how come like thousands of tickets are now going on the secondary site? And Eric Church decided to work with, uh, with, with the ticketing program to actually cancel all of those tickets and put them back on sale. The artist has the final right, I believe, to make the, the change of whatever they want to do because the systems are there. Would you have to do that virtually for every show? I mean, how could you... Uh, every show. How do you do that? How, how, does he, how do you track a super bot? Every show. Because you have to, You know what? If you want it done, it's work. And it's work that is designed to to help the fans. And any time that you lose sight as an entertainer, that the fans are somehow not getting what they deserve, you have to take a stand and you have to work with the government. It's actually pretty simple, really. There, there are, there are, are, there, there's methods in place. Louis C.K., for instance, the comedian, the only way to buy tickets for any of his shows, and he plays venues well above and beyond what your average superstar plays sometimes mm. in the music business, um, the only way to buy tickets is through his website. So he has actually spent his own money developing yeah. the technology, working with really great people, and he will actually just take a look and make sure that, you know, the right, that, you know, if there are... Here's the thing. If you go with your gut, you're probably right. If you start to see credit cards that have an, a mailing address in Texas and you want to see a show in Toronto and there are 500 people from Texas, chances are it's a bot. 
So again, do you do you have the ability to track these? And then what do you do? Go back and see all these tickets from one source, and then yeah. just yank them. And you just you yank them, and you put. Them what back about on the person sale? that's actually bought them, though? Um, I think that there are or the bot. Yeah, I think that there are probably safeguards in place that what they'll probably do is before they automatically cancel those tickets is I've actually never seen this before and I've never heard of anybody personally getting this. But I would imagine that what they would do is they would let the the person who bought the tickets have X amount of time in order to prove that they are, in fact, indeed a real person. And it's just it's just those safeguards that you, you have to do. And it's funny because, you know, we we. You know, with the secondary market, concerts, I know that there are a limited amount of tickets. I know that people always want to go see their favorite artists live. But, like, what's what's the difference, really, between this and, and putting up on, on, a, on eBay a rare autograph signed book by Kurt Vonnegut? There's only one hmm. of them. Hmm. That person has the only one. But why is it okay for that person specifically to sell that item and not concert tickets? It's because the fans actually got really mad and very angry um, and and decided that this is what they were going to focus on. And if you if you use the technology, and I think if you ask the right questions to the people that would know how to work technology to stop the bots, I think there are answers out there. You know, not every, you know, we can't just, put up our hands and say, well, that's it. We're done. Whose responsibility is this then, Eric? Is it the artist's responsibility? Is it the record company, uh, the ticket agency, um, or is it government? Uh, I think it's everybody's, excluding the record label, because they don't really get involved with it, but although that they see a really nice effect from, of course, the record sales or potentially merchandising if those if the artists have signed those kind of a deal. But it starts first and foremost with the artist and manager going to the promoter. They're the ones that actually put up the money to have that artist perform. And then that promoter then goes to the venue and then the ticketing site, and they all work hand in hand. But the artist is the one that gets the heat from it. As much as Ticketmaster gets a really bad reputation sometimes every once in a while for not being able to stop this, they're not doing it because they feel greedy or, you know, that they want to somehow make the fans feel unworthy. They're, they're really, truly doing their best to, to, to do it. And in fact, a number of people that are quite high up um, at Live Nation and Ticketmaster have actually gone out in public and said, you know what, we're not going to eliminate scalping. There's no way to do that. But what they can do is at least put government protections in place so that the fans have somewhere to go and either complain to or at least put a stop to those people who are continually breaking the law and the system. Because before, you see all the scalpers outside of First Ontario Centre, and you know that they're selling tickets for higher for, for, for higher face value, mm-hmm. but you see police like just kind of there. Yeah. Nobody's mandated the police department to actually say, you know what, for the next eight months, this is what you're going to focus on. And that comes from the government, that comes from the law, that comes from the police to actually enforce those laws. And now that they've got a pretty good one in place. So you think this is a relatively solvable problem? Not completely, but certainly manageable. I think it's going to be a lot better in the next little bit. And I think you're going to start to see a lot of artists starting off with Bruce Springsteen working with um, only with official ticketing sites where, say, Ticketmaster has their verified 
band program where you submit all of your information ahead of time, including credit card information and all of your identification that they need, and you are officially verified, which means that you have proven to Ticketmaster that you are a real fan. And in some cases, like the Bruce Springsteen show on Broadway, where he announced something like 48 to 56 shows so far on Broadway, if you weren't a verified fan, you did not have access to tickets. Hmm. And of course, when you have a small venue in a big art yeah. like Springsteen, everybody signed up. I think the more people that, that offered that kind of protection and say the only way to verify this is if you are a true fan, I think that's going to be a good first step for a lot of artists. What about uh, capping the price of uh, a resale at 50% of the original face value? That's a really interesting one. Um, I, and how would, you arrive of, at, how would you arrive at that figure? Um, you know what? I think 50% was just that middle ground that they wanted to just make sure that those superstar artists that are charging anywhere between $200 and $350 for one ticket um, caps it so that it's not really out of reach for people who want to go see it, just in case. Um, I think also, too, and I don't know this for a fact, so I'm just purely speculating. I think it's a really easy number to come up with so that those secondary sites that are running legitimate businesses like StubHub can actually come back and say, you know what, we're going to work with the government on this. We'll give them this and not have a complete 100% free market system, but lay off everything else. So keep us out of your, your lawsuits against us because we just happen to be a website you know it's kind of like suing facebook for something that you don't like being written you can't really sue facebook although that they're mm. somehow now involved with it so i think the 50 percent was a nice middle ground for somebody like StubHub to say you know what we'll follow along with this but you need to give us these leeways to make sure that we can still operate and own a respectable business in, in the province of ontario when will we know if this works eric um, I would probably say the next time that you or I decide to go and buy tickets. Will you know? Imme- will you know immediately like that? Will you see the difference? Do you think you will? You will see the difference immediately. Actually, I've already seen it with, when I tried to go get tickets for Bruce Springsteen on Broadway in New York. Um, the only way that 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 I could have gotten tickets was to do the verified fan service. Um, because of that, and when tickets went on sale and sold out within minutes, I went on secondary sites. There weren't a lot of them that were there. And it certainly wasn't, you know, 800 of the 1,400 tickets that were available because with a gold mine of potential, uh, you know, revenue on the secondary or illegal sites, um, that would have been a perfect show for people to clean up at um, because that demand was so high. I think when you start to see those, those superstar artists tour like a Bon Jovi or Adele or Ed Sheeran, when they start coming to your town, if you start to hear grumbling, and I'm not talking like, one or two people on Facebook complaining that they couldn't get tickets. Because for Adele's tour, for instance, 27 million people were trying to get tickets for maybe 800,000 seats. Like, mm. that's, people are going to lose out. Yeah. But I think it's when you start to see, hey, how come all of these people are starting to put tickets on sale the second that they go on sale to the general public? And I think that's where you're going to start to see some complaining happen. Hmm. Uh, I can't let you go, Eric, without uh, asking you your thoughts on Hamilton hosting the Junos. Uh, They were, I I guess, thinking about doing it again, meaning the city in 2020, but it appears that they've been approached by the Juno people to uh, make a bid for uh, 2019. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's really interesting the fact that the Juno people 
told them to make the bid. And I think part of the part of the the reasoning for that is, um, and it's no secret, Toronto and Hamilton and the GTA are the biggest markets when it comes to television revenue and ratings. And now that you know potentially that the C, that that CTV may or may not be doing it. CBC may or may not be doing it, but I think keeping it in Ontario, and I'm completely biased in this, um, you know, although it's great to have it in Vancouver and Victoria and Halifax, but there's nothing like having the the amount of people within a hundred kilometer radius of Toronto and Hamilton to have the Junos here. So I'm not surprised. And I'd love to see it there. When we were there last time, it was one of the, the giant, biggest, most professionally run parties I've ever been to in a week. Uh, what about uh, Saskatoon and London? Um, I would put them behind Hamilton. Um, you know, do you, think, do you think that's why they're being asked to submit a bid this time as opposed to next year? Uh, no, I, I, I think, you know, London just had the, the Canadian Country Music Award and it ran amazingly well. Saskatoon has had a lot of great businesses and support from there, including the uh, Potash Corporation, which has been a major sponsor of things like the Canadian Country Music Awards. Um, but I, I think that there might be a philosophy of this isn't just the one city show. I think that they want to make it Canada show. And I don't think anybody would really fault um, for keeping it within a certain radius of, of direction in order to, to have it here. And I think that it, it's where, it's where the money is. And, and as awful as that sounds, you know, there's a reason why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland as opposed to New York, because Cleveland wanted it badly, yeah. more, more badly, mm. more, more badly yep. than, than New York did. And I think sometimes behind the scenes, we're never quite sure how things are maneuvering. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to keep it within that GTA for a little bit. Eric Alper has been with us, music publicist, talking about everything from Junos to uh, ticket bots. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Love talking to you. We'll Take talk- care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, in case you haven't heard, this morning it was announced that the Trans-Canada Corporation has scrapped its Energy East pipeline and uh, the Eastern Main uh, mainline projects. Uh, how does this affect uh, other pipelines? How does this affect getting, of course, Canadian products to market? Uh, joining us now to talk about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure, Scott. So why is uh, TransCanada Corporation pulling out? Is this about uh, environmental advocacy or is this about market conditions? I, I do not accept the argument that it is market conditions, as energy, uh, the federal government, Energy Minister Carr said. And uh, the reason I don't is that we can test his claim very easily. And we can look at other regions of the world uh, and see if uh, pipelines are being shut down and canceled there as well. So I went to the, uh, there's a very prestigious organization called the Oil and Pipeline Journal, which does an annual survey of pipelines around the world. I have it on my computer in front of me as I talk to you. This is the most recent study uh, because they do it once a year, and so there's always a lag with the data. This is 2016, which is just last year after the price of oil had gone down dramatically, um, and, uh, and gas. Um, in 2016, around the world, there are 94,799 miles of pipelines planned or under construction. Um, so that's almost 100,000. Uh, that's for the world. Now, North America is 34,000 of that almost 100,000 miles of pipeline construction. 
So if it was market conditions, as Minister Carr and others have suggested, then you would see a collapse in pipeline construction around the world. You would see them being canceled left, right, and center. In fact, as we speak in the United States, there is an orgy of construction of pipelines in the U.S. We share the North American continent, very similar conditions, similar wage structures, similar legal system, and so forth. And, uh, and pipelines are not being uh, canceled there. In fact, they are being approved, new pipelines. And I don't just mean Keystone, but there's a huge new pipeline uh, being uh, uh, developed uh, in the back and oil shield area around below Saskatchewan, Alberta, and it's going to go down to the uh, Gulf. So we can simply test the argument. Is it the market conditions that there's no demand for oil and gas, prices are going down, there's no way to make it viable? And the market is simply saying that that's nonsense. Pipelines are being built everywhere around the world, with the exception of Canada. So what is it then, Ian? Well, I think that Energy, the, the, the company involved, looked at, the, uh, they looked at the, uh, the new rules that have been announced by the uh, government in, uh, in Ottawa, the federal government, and the rules are much more stringent, they're much more difficult, and uh, they came to the conclusion between that and the fact that there was very strident opposition in Quebec, and the Liberal government of uh, Justin Trudeau is heavily, they have a lot of seats in Quebec, and they came to the conclusion that there was, uh, it was never going to get approved. And so they decided instead of spending millions and millions of dollars more on a lost cause, uh, they decided to cut their losses now and, um, and to get out. So when you step back and look at the big picture in Canada, uh, although the government said that they're in favor of pipelines, that's what their rhetoric is, when you look at the record as opposed to the rhetoric, pipelines are being canceled because it's much more difficult, it's become much more politicized, and as a consequence, oil, comp- oil and gas companies are saying, you know, we're just not going to waste all this money to, uh, to end up getting turned down to, uh, anyways for a pipeline. So how is the Prime Minister going to react to this as saying, as you uh, just said, that you know, we have to get our goods to market. He's, he said that uh, right from the beginning. So what's his reaction to this, do you think? Well, he's been saying that, but I think what we're seeing now after two years, we could accept that at, at, at the beginning of the mandate because there was no evidence to the contrary. But now there's a pattern of evidence that's emerging from this government, and we're seeing that what they're saying that they are doing and support versus what they are actually doing are not the same thing because you, we can't sugarcoat or fake or hide the fact that these pipelines are not proceeding. They are being canceled, and they're being canceled because they can't get approvals. And the approvals are determined, the rules pertaining to approvals, are being implemented by this government. So I think that what we're realizing is they're saying one thing, but they're doing another. They're saying we're rah, rah, rah for pipelines, but in fact, I don't believe they are in favor of pipelines. So out of these four main that have been thrown out there in the last few years, will any of these get built? Well, the irony, this is truly the irony, the only one that's likely to be built, and that's Keystone, will be built not because of Canadian decision, but because of American decision, because of the guy in the White House. And, uh, and, and if I could just back up just for a moment, Scott, because I really think it's important. Some people are saying, oh, well, don't you understand, Ian Lee? You know, pipelines are dangerous and that sort of thing. I went and did some research. The pipelines have been uh, regulated in Canada and the States for a very, very long time. Uh, the first pipeline was built in 1851, 150 years ago. We have millions and millions of pipelines crisscrossing Canada and the United States. 65% of Canadian households 
are heated by natural gas. And the only way you can get natural gas into a house is through a pipeline. And, and so my point is, this is a, an urban legend that uh, pipelines are dangerous. In fact, every year that's gone by, and the stats are published by SIMSA, SIMSA is the Pipeline Safety Hazardous Materials Administration in Washington, D.C. It's a federal agency that only regulates pipelines. And they've been publishing statistics on pipeline incidents, as they call them, going back 50, 60, 70 years. And every year that goes by, pipelines are safer and safer and safer and safer. And there are uh, essentially almost no fatalities year after year after year from uh, pipelines. And there's a reason for that. We generally root pipelines into the rural parts of the country, both Canada and the States. And, we, you know, of course, there are pipe, trunk pipelines running into a city, and then we run down very small pipelines down each street. But we, generally speaking, are the, the main backbone of the pipeline system in both Canada and States are in the rural where there aren't a lot of people. And then on top of that, the technology's been getting better and better. And so my point is, is that the reality, whether we like it or not, is that we are overwhelmingly, to this day, both around the world and especially in Canada and the States, about 80% of our total energy comes from oil and gas, or fossil fuels, if you will. Uh, the good news is, is that we've essentially eliminated, or we're well on the road to eliminating coal, which is the dirtiest of the filthiest of the dirtiest of the fossil fuels, and we're moving more and more and more to natural gas, which is the cleanest of the cleanest of the clean of fossil fuels. Full disclosure, I don't have any investments or I don't consult to these companies, but I am a natural gas consumer, customer in my house. And, and so because there's very large numbers of Canadians and businesses and government office buildings and hospitals and universities who heat their buildings, uh, with natural gas, so it, it's Ian, critical for us to be trying to stop these pipelines. Let me ask you. Um, uh, obviously, in Quebec, a horrific accident uh, a year or so, a couple of years ago now, uh, with the train accident hauling uh, wow. cargo uh, tanks full of oil. Uh, how do people think it's getting there if it's not getting there through a pipeline? Yeah. And are we fooling ourselves by carting yes. train car after train car full of oil uh, through residential neighborhoods? Exactly. There's two really, I, in my view, I'm speaking very bluntly, there's two fundamentally dishonest, implicit claims in this entire debate. One is that there are safer alternatives to pipelines. SIMSA, the nonpartisan, not funded by, gov- by, by the industry, but funded by the U.S. Congress, by the, par- by the Congress of the United States, by the government, has shown the stats are very, very clear that the pipelines are the safest way to transport hazardous materials oil, gas, and other hazardous materials, uh, by far safer than trains, by the way. And, and the second one is the second, uh, di- what I consider a dishonesty in this debate, is if we don't build the pipelines, well, we're not going to be using these substances. In fact, for a very long time, the Maritimes in Quebec have been importing oil from Venezuela and the Middle East. Now, these are very unsavory regimes. They are not democracies. They are, uh, many of these countries are involved in uh, human rights violations. They have much lower environmental and human rights standards. So what we're doing is we're saying no to a Canadian pipeline with very rigorous Canadian standards yeah. using Canadian oil not and my Canadian backyard. natural gas, yeah. and instead we're going to use Saudi Arabian or Venezuelan oil and natural gas. This is upside down and backward. Uh, many will say this is because we, we don't need it anymore. Consumption is down, prices are down, we don't need this anymore. Well, that's one of those superficially plausible arguments. People say, yeah, it's down, we don't need it. But that's not true. We are using oil in Quebec. 
Quebec is not exempt from cars, unless somebody thinks everybody in Quebec is driving electric cars, and that is simply not the case. Or in the Maritimes, they are now using. This wasn't about providing new oil to fund new demand. This was about displacing, kicking out the Saudi Arabian oil, kicking out the Venezuelan oil, kicking out the Iraqi oil and the Iranian oil. It wasn't creating, finding new sources, uh, new demands, new, new requirements for the oil. It was just simply kicking out the foreign oil to use the Canadian oil. And the Canadian oil is uh, uh, built, uh, produced and shipped under much more stringent uh, safety and environmental regulations than the foreign oil. So it's not a question about his oil demand going up, down, or sideways. It was simply replacing the existing oil. People do drive cars in the Maritimes and in Quebec, and they're overwhelmingly, I mean, electric cars are less than one-tenth of one percent of cars on the road. These people are driving cars down there that use gasoline. They're heating their homes with bunker home heating oil or natural gas. And so all we were doing was displacing imports of foreign oil, foreign gas, with domestic that's all that this was doing, and mm. using existing pipelines that were going to be retrofitted. So they can't even argue, oh, well, this was going to desecrate the landscape of Quebec. They were using existing uh, right-of-ways where the pipelines are already there. In fact, they were going to build, replace older pipelines built 30, 40 years ago with brand-new, state-of-the-art, much more sophisticated and more rigorous pipelines. So, in other words, we're going to keep the older, less uh, rigorous pipelines, uh, rather than replace them with new, modern, state-of-the-art pipelines. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about TransCanada, ter- uh, Trans-Canada terminating its plan for the $15.7 billion Energy East pipeline. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.